Good morning. I hope you can hear me okay. Um, we're going to get started this morning. Uh, we're starting a new series uh, in Sunday School. Um, we're going to be going through the Old Testament, um, specifically looking at a few uh, different narratives over the next uh, six weeks or so. Uh, this morning, though, we're going to start in the book of John, which I understand is not the Old Testament. Um, but I want to speak with you and have a discussion this morning and really hope that it can be a discussion on a topic um, out of the book of John, chapter 18, uh, that Jesus discusses with Pontius Pilate uh, before uh, Pilate leaves and he's turned over to be crucified. Uh, John, chapter 18, verses 33 to 40 is what we're going to begin with. I'll, uh, I'll read this passage beginning John 18, verse 33, uh, and then we'll pray. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. So we'll stop there uh, with the reading this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that you have given to us. We thank you and praise you that you have given it to us that we might know who you are, that we might understand your control over the world and over us. And Lord, we pray as we study your word together this morning and as we discuss it as your people, that we would be encouraged by it, that our hearts would be built up, that we would see and behold the Lord Jesus and see Him as the most beautiful person in the world. And Lord, I pray that as we are here this morning with our Bibles open, that our hearts would be open too to hear all that You would have to say to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So in today's passage, uh, there's something of one of John's favorite literary devices uh, that he uses. And I don't want this to be a lecture. Again, I hope this can be an interactive time that we discuss things uh, and are able to go back and forth a bit. Um, The lesson this morning is titled, Our Need for Truth. And one of John's favorite literary devices is irony. Uh, And particularly in this passage, it's very evident. Perhaps you caught it. Uh, Jesus is in the headquarters of Pilate, the one who is entrusted to make decisions regarding the truthfulness of what the chief priests alleged concerning Jesus. They came saying, we believe this about him. We want you to decide. Um, You notice earlier in the passage, they decided not to even go into the praetorium uh, because they wanted to still be able to participate in the Passover. So another bit of irony They're willing to go and have Jesus killed uh, by a Roman who's in charge, but not willing to get their own hands dirty and be involved in it. And after a brief exchange between Jesus and Pilate, tension builds to a climax when Pilate asks Jesus in, in verse 38, what is truth? 
And there's a hollow silence in the room then. Because there's nothing that's said. And the only thing that you hear are Pilate's feet shuffling out the door to go back out. He doesn't even wait for an answer. The one who's charged with the duty of identifying the truth in a matter questions the very existence of that idea and doesn't bother himself to even hear Jesus' response. The irony is that Pilate is responsible to identify it, to uphold it. That's what any person in, in authority is to do. Truth is supposed to matter to them. And they're also to take courageous action based on it. And in his headquarters that day, he was face to face with Jesus, who is the literal embodiment of truth. And he didn't even wait to hear his answer. Pilate's question echoes to us today. It's something that we have to hear and answer. What is truth? Is there anything that is solid, that is built on a foundation that does not change? Are there things that are true, that are timeless? that happen and occur in all places, in all times, for all people, that are what we would call an absolute, something that does not change. Winston Churchill said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing has happened. Is there any real source of truth beyond our own experience today? I think that's one of the questions that our culture, and even in the church, some have already answered. Is there anything that is a real source of truth beyond my experience and my own sense of self-awareness? And by the way, how dare anybody, especially the church, think they have the right to question the validity of my feelings or the realness of my own experience? This idea has been popularized in our culture today and in some ways has crept into the church as being called my truth. My truth, your truth. You can't invalidate mine. I can't invalidate yours. The only thing that I can say about yours is something affirming or celebratory. But if I have anything to say that might seem to contradict what you have experienced or how you feel, then I should sit down and be quiet and not have an opinion at all. So I want to talk this morning about this. And we may not get through all of it this week and we'll just spill over into next week and that's fine. But... Are there some things that we could talk about this morning, and I I believe there are, about what truth is? Are there absolute truths? And not just think about this as a culture war, as it might have been called, but something that also takes place in the church and also in our home. And I don't have anything particular in mind regarding Lebanon other than just simply saying that it is contradictory for us to believe that we can know the truth and live by it unless we are opening our Bibles and reading it. There is not another source of truth. It's not in ourselves. We're not going to find it if we only look inside. So I think this is a battle that each of us must fight every day. But it's also a battle that must be fought and won in the church. It has to be. It is not something that we go outside and do. We do it together on our knees before the Lord Jesus with our Bibles open. In humility. So I want to read a, uh, a statement of faith. Uh, this is a French statement of faith, uh, confession from uh, 1559. And I do have a, a place that I want to start with as a seat of authority. But let's, let me just ask, though, uh, what is the way that Jesus rules his church? How, and think about our confession or our, our catechisms. How does Jesus rule his church? Whereby does he, he give us 
His laws, His rules, His governing. Matthew said the Word. The Word of God. Absolutely. And are there others? Is there any other rule that God has given to bind the consciences and hearts of men and women? Ten Commandments included in His Word, but only in His Word. That means I can't bind your conscience. Uh, Popular opinion can't. The PCA can't. It is the Word of God that our conscience is to, to be given total salute to, not to any other person or any other thing. It is God's Word alone. It is how He rules His church. So courts can err, right? Elders can err. Um, churches can. It is absolutely possible that that's true, but His Word does not change. So I think that part of the battle that we have to think about being in as a church and as a believer um, especially those who um, want to raise children to know the Lord and be a part of a church body that takes that seriously. I think we have to, we have, to have a, a very strong and particular view and a rigid view of God's Word. I think that's one place we have to start. Um, it's not the only place. I think there are several. But I want to read this French confession. This is from 1559. It says, We believe that the Word of God contained in these books of the Scriptures has proceeded from God and received its authority from Him alone and not from men. And inasmuch as it is the rule of all truth, containing all that is necessary for the service of God and for our salvation, it is not lawful for men nor even angels to add to it, to take away from it or to change it. Whence it follows that no authority, whether of antiquity or custom or numbers or human wisdom, or judgments, or proclamations, or edicts, or decrees, or counsels, or visions, or miracles, should be opposed to these holy scriptures. But on the contrary, all things should be examined, regulated, and reformed according to them. So that's not the Westminster Confession. We could go and read that. That is, that is part of our Constitution. But I wanted to share this because there are some particular statements here that I think speak to the nature of the issue. And I think anybody would agree, and I I did think about inviting our young people to come this morning. I think anybody would agree, including our young people who who see the influence of the culture in a different way than we do, uh, that coming to Lebanon, they would say, yes, I believe the Scriptures to be the Word of God. They are His divinely inspired Word given to us. But one of the questions that I, I think, and I read this, this is not an original thought with me, and by the way, I'm reading from a book uh, written by John Armstrong with contributions from other writers, including um, R. Kent Hughes, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Michael Horton, and Albert Moeller. This book was written in the 90s, and it's called The Coming Evangelical Crisis. So that's what I'm quoting some from. Uh, but this book was written in the 90s. I think they are writing for a time that we are living in now. Um, this is not something that is coming, it's here. And in some ways, we are living in the middle of it and fighting against it. And I don't mean necessarily thinking about fighting our culture or fighting other people in the church. I think this is, this is part of the, the weapons of our warfare uh, that Paul talks about in Corinthians, that this is not something we're fighting looking at people across the aisle. Um, I don't think that that's helpful to think that there are enemies that we should fight inside the church. But there is a battle going on for truth. 
Francis Turretin said about the scriptures themselves, and he is probably, if you're not familiar with him, probably one of the greatest theologians since John Calvin. <clears throat> he said, the real question is not, is scripture the rule for our faith? He believes that that is a valid question. But he said the real question is, it is, is it the full, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and adequate rule of faith? Many modern evangelicals will agree that it is a rule and even defend its inerrancy and authority at a certain level. What has been missed is that they do not generally treat Scripture, at least practically, as if it is the sole authoritative rule of faith and practice. So it might seem like, okay, well, sounds like you're splitting hairs. Um, what is it that you're saying? Um, can we just speak about that for a minute? The difference between the Scripture as an authority and the Scripture as sufficient as the rule of faith and practice for God's people. What is it that we mean when we say Scripture is our authority? Anybody? It governs our lives. It's what reveals God to us Himself and how we're supposed to live. So what are some other things that can be a authority and authority but are not absolute that we've been talking about this morning? Or some things that I haven't brought up. I'm sure there are others. about personal things like my feelings or my experience or how I was raised what my parents taught me it is those are subjective things because your your upbringing your parents um, how you feel about what has happened to you in life those things are are subjective to you but Today, in our society, those things are held up as unquestionable, unable to be touched or spoken to. Uh, and it's, it's kind of the upside-down world that we live in right now uh, because we're told that those things are, are chief and primary and you shouldn't push down those things in yourself. Um, you should be working towards personal healing and, and personal health. Those things should be priorities. But... 
I think that it, it's how we begin approaching the Word of God uh, that has to be that has to be looked at and scrutinized and and maybe even considered: Am I doing this right? Because the Word of God is not primarily to make sense of those things, your experience and how you were brought up, how you feel about certain things or what's happened to you, what other people have done to you. What primarily is the the purpose of the Word of God? Yes. Unless he reveals himself to me. So that gets revelatory in that way. So, and then how I'm responding. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like, Pam, you're saying, and Mrs. Lilly, you're saying too, that we should be looking at God's Word and, and seeing truth there first. That's where we should be beginning. Uh, that should be the starting place of truth. So... Even if you're thinking, well, I'm going to go to the Bible. So that, you know, I've got this going on. I'm going to go to the Bible to understand this. And there may be a sense in which the Lord may comfort your heart and be with you in those times. I'm not saying at all that the, the Word of God does not have a place for being able to be applied to your current situation or my current situation. But the Word of God primarily is not a therapeutic tool for you and I to use to be able to have a lens to look at what's happening in life. Not primarily. The Word of God is to teach us about who He is and His greatness and His holiness and His righteousness. And so, yes, I can go to the Psalms and and weep with the psalmist. And those are deeply healing times to be with the Lord. But I don't go there so that I have a lens to look at my life. I go there to see the one who is truth. Who is up and above all the things that are happening. Right? Those things are absolutely true. So one of the things that I think might be, might be an issue for us in, in the church is that we, we do have, and in the world, we have a, a, maybe a backwards view of why we go to the Bible. Why do we read it? What is it for? Our catechism says that it is to, to teach us about who God is and how we are to believe about Him, and then what duty God requires of the one who knows Him. Those are the two things that the Scriptures do. It is not primarily to go and get a sense or get a level for my feelings. Uh, that's significant because maybe a certain percentage of the time, that's what a lot of us are going to the Scriptures for. So if we're going to the Scriptures for something that it was not intended to do, how can we say for sure we know we're meeting with God? But if I have a feeling, if, if, if the only reason that I say that I believe I've spent time with God is because I had a feeling then we've subjectified him and his presence, the truth of his, his scriptures, according to how I feel. One of the things that we read in that statement of faith was that though the truths of the scriptures exist outside of me recognize them. Is that true? That the Bible is true even if I, even if I don't see it as true? That has to be true. If that's not true, then we're in trouble. Because it is not validated based on my understanding or my experience of it. The, the truth and veracity of Scripture stands outside of my own existence, even. So that's significant. It's important. One of the things that I think we, we have done, I believe we've done in our culture, certainly we've, we are, there are some who would even say this is happening in some churches, is that truth has fallen off of the, the pedestal. And I certainly don't mean that truth is above God. 
God is truth. But we have, we have taken it off the pedestal. And there are some passages that I want to read uh, and look at before going through some notes. And I just, I just want to talk about these for a few minutes this morning as we think about this idea of truth and, and our particular need of it. Um, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm just going to read um, a few passages uh, from Isaiah and Jeremiah. I'm going to begin in Isaiah chapter 59. In verse 13. Isaiah 59, starting in verse 13. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter, so truth fails. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then uh, Jeremiah chapter 9. You keep your finger there in Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 3. And like their bow they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth. For they proceed from evil to evil. And they do not know me, says the Lord. And then back to Isaiah, over to chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What the the writers of these two books these two prophets are saying is that there is a definite fixed point of truth and what has taken place according to isaiah it says truth has stumbled in the streets it's no longer held up where it should be it's fallen and that what has reigned and taken its place it doesn't exist in a vacuum what has stepped into its place is falsehood and lies and what are the things that that typically that take over. You can think about the culture. But if truth is taken out of the place that it should exist, and the Word of God is removed from where it should exist as an authority, as the authority for faith and practice, then, then what goes in its place? What goes in the place of truth? Man's own wisdom. Man's own wisdom. What I believe, what I, what I say, what I think. There's a, a popular quote in a movie. Um, Mark Wahlberg was in years ago called Shooter. And there's a political um, operative in the movie who's talking with one of his aides. And they're joking about some proceedings that happened with one of the joint chiefs. And he says, the truth is what I say it is. That's what's truth. If I say it, that's truth. But I can say something different tomorrow. How can that, how can that be a standard? So I want to talk about just some of the some of the identifying markers of what truth is in God's Word and why these are significant this morning. And we'll pick up next week um, going through the rest of this. But what is, what is truth? And not just a philosophical discussion. You have to keep God's Word in mind. Remember Jesus said as He prayed, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. And then Paul, he prayed... He said, let the the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
So if the word of God is truth and God is true, and if we're saying that truth has fallen in the streets, who is it that has fallen? Man has. But in man's eyes, God has. I don't need him. And that's why one of the postmodern thinkers could say that man is the measure of all things. If, there's, if God is not on the throne, someone is going to go on the throne. You, you've heard that argument before. If God is not on the throne of your life, then something else will be. And it is not an authority to sit on that throne. So what is truth? What are some things about it? And this is specifically linked to thinking about God and his word and who he is. This isn't just a a philosophical idea of whether truth can be known and understood. Um, I'm assuming those things are true. What is truth? It's objective. It is. It has to be objective. It's reasonable. It can be observed and tested. And it is accurate. And we said a few moments ago that truth particularly thinking about God's word and who he is. Those things exist outside of us and even outside of our recognition of them. Aldous Huxley wrote, facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored. That's a pretty bold statement. Facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored. And yet in society today, it seems like the exact opposite is true. That the only thing that's true is what we give attention and and watch and listen to. And if I don't want to hear what you have to say, it's not true at all. I just don't want to hear it. Truth being objective, it's broad in its scope. It's in accordance with reality and what truly takes place. What can be and is known and it is absolutely the standard. It is not a standard. It's not relative. It is the standard. We said earlier it is authoritative from the the quote we were reading from the French Confession in 1559. It's to be esteemed above human opinion, emotion, and experience. So I want to ask a question. We said that it's authoritative and everybody seemed to, to shake their head. Yes, that makes sense. But in the confession that we read from 1559, it said that it is not only authoritative, but it's also sufficient for faith and practice. So can we speak about that for just a few minutes? What does it mean that the scriptures are sufficient? Not just authoritative, that they should be in the place of the final authority. But what does it mean that they're sufficient? And I'll have something to read, but I was hoping we could discuss this just a little bit. What does it mean that something... Okay. It's in there. So Sally said, we don't have to go somewhere else or have someone explain it to us. When you have a question about something, the truth is in the scriptures. You don't need a priest to tell you what it says. I want to read just briefly, and then I'd like to hear, maybe we can discuss this further, um, that the scriptures are sufficient. This point challenges the supplements that medieval theologians sought to bring to God's word. It challenged the supplements that the church brought to the word as well, including indulgences. Wasn't that something that Martin Luther spoke very clearly about? Because the Holy Spirit is present in the revelation of the word, any teaching that goes beyond this word must be rejected, period. That's an absolute statement. Is that true? Go ahead to it and don't take away from it. 
Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. That's a pretty hard and fast, simple rule. Luther once said that this was true even if it snowed miracles every day. That you don't take away from the scriptures. You don't add to them. So there's a, another statement that's made, and I, I want to get into it, but I'm not, I'm not going to. I want to continue to talk about this, the sufficiency of Scripture for faith and practice. So maybe let's talk a little bit practically. Um, maybe you have young people in your life, and they're, they're talking about their spirituality and their walk with the Lord, and, and they, want to, um, they want to experience God in a deeper way, and they'd like to do something that might... Um, draw them into that where they might experience God in a, in a closer way. Um, and maybe it goes outside of, of the scriptures. But maybe the first thing that comes to mind is not that, but how you don't agree with what they're saying. How are you going to have that conversation with them? And I'm expecting that you're emoting a lot as you're hearing your young person tell you, I want to do this. I really, I really believe this is necessary. And maybe your young person might not say that because we've exchanged the word believe for feel. Well, I think it has to start with curiosity mm. because if, if you come out with a statement, then, you know, the fists come out. So, mm. you know, when, I, when my kids are talking about it, I really have to be curious and say, why do you think that way? Tell me what you're thinking or mm-hmm. sure, sure me what's going on that you've come to this Mm-hmm. And so not um, asking questions that are closed-ended that I get a yes or no response, right? Because it doesn't get me anywhere. But really being intentional to ask open-ended questions that then helps spur on the conversation. So Julie said ask open-ended questions, not specifically yes or no questions. Um, and it sounded like you were saying, too, don't, make, don't start out with matter-of-fact statements about it either. Um, even though you may have a very strong opinion. But the thing is, is like, and then like you do this really well, is come up with salient remarks that helps secure the direction of the conversation because really you're facilitating a conversation. So you have the power to land the, the, the plane where you want it to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, a skill. But, you know, as a parent, that's, you can kind of direct and steer the conversation. So, again, with those questions kind of lead it um, to the place that you want it to go. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's really what I'm trying to do. It kind of becomes a little game. Yep. But again, just um, putting down, you know, that oh, I want them to be this way. I want mm-hmm. them to go this direction and come at it with gloves on. Um, so starting with curiosity and leading it to the destination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that there are probably some parents in the room or grandparents in the room who, who are uh, black and white about things. And so the, the only thing that's, that matters is that what you're wanting to do goes against the scriptures. So that, that ends the conversation. Next, please. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm usually the one that should sit down. Yeah. And then what happens? They go in the opposite direction that I really didn't tell them to go. Yeah. So, um, and that's the intentional part that I have to really say, you know what, this is an opportunity. Hmm. I think the whole process you're talking about is with that counseling. Mm-hmm. To where you are counseling with the Word of God, but you have to discuss with what the individual is pursuing mm-hmm. and what they are trying to accomplish mm-hmm. and then find out how they will do that then because they will bring the word of God to bear mm-hmm. to answer and to fulfill what it is they're seeking mm-hmm. and so that is basically what pathetic counseling is counseling the church Mm-hmm. I think that's got to be in your conversation. Yeah, as you're as you're having this discussion with your your teenager or young person, they want to have a, a spiritual experience. They think this is this is a way to do that to get closer to God. So, I think certainly what Julie's saying is excellent advice. A- ask those questions, but you do have to get to the point. Can we? Let's look at the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about it? Mm-hmm. They have to establish that the Bible is the authority. Right. Not what they think they need to do to accomplish what they are seeking. Yeah. It is the fact that they have to they have to yield to the authority of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And that's hard for teenagers and 80-year-old people. Yeah. <laughs> just, to, just to clarify, Jim said it is hard for teenagers and even for older folks to yield to the authority of Scripture. That what I feel I might need... If the Bible says something different, as a believer, I'm supposed to bow the knee there. Do we agree with that? Yeah, and I think that so much in our conversations you know, in this society, and it's been around for a long time, people used to talk about, I think this is what we ought to do. Mm-hmm. But now we find that even in high-level decision-making governmental um, agencies and everything, they talk about, I feel. Mm-hmm. I feel. Well, there's no authority for feeling. Mm-hmm. You have to say, I think that this is the way we ought to go. Mm-hmm. Not, I feel like it, because it feels, when we're talking about feelings, what we're talking about is something you change in a whim. Mm-hmm. And, well, I can bring out a lot of examples of that, but that's just that's just the nature that we moved away from the very uh, medium of truth. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying it's objective, we put it inside us. Mm-hmm. And that's subjectivity, that's feelings. And that's the way people communicate. When we talk about feelings, we have no standard for proper action or responsibility. Mm-hmm. Maybe in just the last 10 minutes or so, I want to take one of the overtures that we discussed last week. Um, and I thought Mac brought up a very good question. And the overture that we were discussing is before the presbyteries to be voted on before next year's uh, 50th General Assembly. And the overture is to add a statement to our Book of Church order for our uh, qualifications for officers, so elders and deacons, um, that they may not identify as a homosexual even if they claim to not be practicing it, if they identify, meaning they have to put this before their Christianity, 
Don't say I'm a Christian. I'm a gay Christian or a same-sex attracted Christian. If that's if that's the statement they are making, then they're not qualified for office. And Mac, um, while we were discussing that last week in the General Assembly report, said, "Well, wait a minute. Um, are we singling out this particular sin? And are we going to end up in in the next few years with a great big laundry list appendices?" to our book of church order, listing out all the sins that disqualify someone from being an officer in the church of the Lord Jesus? I think that's a valid question. And that was an argument that was raised even at our own Palmetto Presbytery uh, when we voted on last year's overtures. So I wanted to give us a chance to talk about this um, using the tools uh, that we just have talked about um, and, and thinking about God's word as the authority Um, And part of the argument against this is that it's mean. There are people who struggle with this in the church, and you are making a mean statement about them by saying this. So I want to speak to the validity of it, um, whether it should be included or not, based on God's word as our authority, and also the statement that it is something that's personal and harsh towards others. Because those are two important things that do have to be discussed and answered in the church. And the first one I think that we want to take, and, and I'm, I'm sorry to, to use an, an answer from the catechism, but I, well, no, I'm not sorry. This is, it is our standard. And there's a question that's asked. Are all sins equally heinous? In the, our confession, does anybody remember what it says? No. All sins are not equally heinous. There are some that are much more grievous to the church of the Lord Jesus an affront to his character, his righteousness, his place in the world. Those things are absolutely true. There are things that are much worse. There are things that are scandalous. And and we see that happening. Um, one of the reasons why this particular overture was brought up. Now, do I believe that we should just have a great big appendices? No. But why is it that we need to answer this now? And, and let's talk about this. I gave you an answer um, as a minister of the gospel according to our church constitution are all sins equally heinous no this one is particularly notorious and does a lot of damage in the church and there is a voice in the culture about this as well but can you speak to that part of it um, maybe just discuss this together uh, for just a few moments why is this significant why why should we add it
It's almost as if Jesus gets more glory the worse I am. Shall I go on sinning that grace may abound? I mean, that's, that's part of the argument that Paul was making. At, but if Jesus is glorious, if it's true that Jesus is glorious objectively, so that that, that is the measure, then what I do or don't do doesn't make that better or worse. It, it is true. Jesus is glorious. So... And that's the point I was trying to get to earlier, that if these things are true in the Scriptures, that's what we, we, we do have to start with that as truth. And Jesus is not the, the um, eternal, He loves me, He loves me not, based on how I'm, things are going in my life. That, that cannot be the measure of my experience with Him. Um, our ex, even our experience of who He is has to be measured by what's in the Scriptures. Yes. We sang a song in the choir a um, couple, maybe eight weeks back. Um, when I feel my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. Those are based out of the book of John. Of all those that you gave me, I lost none. So being found and safe and secure in Jesus is not a feeling. It's a state of being. It's a reality. It's a truth. I think that Jim? remember that really where our theology is home is where, in fact, our theology has grown mostly in defense of the heresies. Mm-hmm. that have been raised up against the church mm-hmm. and the church's doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so what we would find is any time in any culture or any era there is a heresy that rises, the church has to speak to it clearly mm-hmm. to define the stance of the church. Mm-hmm. And the stance of the church is to be on the truth of God always. But when we have something that arises and is so popular mm-hmm. and it is against the church, the church has to make a statement, a clear statement, to uh, guide the action of the church. And so I think that this particular issue that is 
in this overture mm -hmm. is something that really needs to be spoken to and they're really clear about. It was true that if you could have used the statement that was original uh, to say this is where we are, mm -hmm. but because this has arisen in society mm -hmm. in such a way that it's making such a vocal statement that we have to sit down and we have to come back and write it out to the point we don't agree. Mm -hmm. This is where we come from. This is what the Word of God says. And so that's it. That's, I think that if we ever stop doing that, we're going down this So I want to pick up right here next week. Um, and we'll finish our need for truth next week. And then we're going to go uh, do what I what I said at the beginning. We're going to go to, in the book of Old, the Old Testament, books in the Old Testament, we're going to look at um, specific case studies and people and their experience of who God is. But I think it's important to kind of start here as we think about God's word as the truth. Um, this is what I hang my hat on, not what my heart tells me today or tomorrow or the next day. Um, but let me pray for us and we'll, we'll be done. Father, we thank you for uh, the word that you have given to us. That it is, uh, in the books of the Bible, it contains all of the words that you want us to know about who you are and how we are to live before you. Lord, I thank you for the, for the men who have handed it down to us through generations of your people and for the doctrines of our holy religion that we, we hold so dear. Lord, I pray that we would continue to hold on to them, that we wouldn't see the world outside as our enemy or even others in the pews beside us as our enemies. Lord, help us to, help us to love the truth and to love people uh, who, who you died for in the church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.